0: Hello everyone, this is WCG Patient Radio. WCG is a company that focuses on the ethical treatment of people participating in clinical research and other solutions that reduce the time, cost, and burden of clinical trials as we seek to create new treatments for unmet medical needs. I am Steve Smith, and today we are speaking about Parkinson's disease with Dr. Jeffrey Cooper, who is an MD, pediatric pulmonologist with a distinguished career as a physician and as an expert in the conduct of clinical trials, who also has Parkinson's disease himself. Hello, Dr. Cooper. Thank you for speaking with us today. Hi, Steve. I want to introduce your background, if you'll bear with me a little bit, because it's very relevant to something most interesting that you're going to talk about in the call here. Um, you are a physician trained in pediatrics, in pulmonary, uh, pediatric pulmonary disease and nuclear medicine. And during your academic career, you were a basic science investigator, a clinical investigator. You were an IRB chair. That's the independent review boards that make sure clinical research is done ethically. And you were a hospital administrator. Um, You also um, left medical practice at one point to start the association for the accreditation of human research protection programs where you were responsible for the development and operation of the accreditation process so that as we look at that process for how can we protect people in clinical research at the same time that we're doing the research um, and testing new drugs. And you've also been an associate medical director at Albany Albany Medical Center, Center, where you were responsible for utilization management and quality improvement. At the company you work at now at WCG, you specialize in combining your management and your regulatory experience to create systems that promote clinical research while meeting regulatory requirements and high ethical standards. You went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute for your undergraduate degree, and you got your medical degree from Albany Medical College, and you also have a master's in medical management a degree for physicians interested in being management and that was um, being in management, and that was from Carnegie Mellon University. You you trained in pediatrics at the University of Iowa and in nuclear medicine and pediatric pulmono- pulmonology at Albany. You are also, um, of course, board certified in those disciplines, and um, you have a National Research Service Award, and there are many other things which makes it clear that you are in the center of clinical research. So. Um, I want to start out just by asking you in general, what first got you into medicine, and what was your motivation, and what is some, one of the most important times or part of your career so people can understand how you think about your career?
1: So I think the, partly what got me into medicine was both my parents are pharmacists, and uh, my dad would take me to the hospital and introduce me to all the physicians, and so I became very interested in high school in uh, becoming a physician. Um, I actually also was very interested in technology and computers and really wanted to go to medicine to sort of combine technology and computers uh, with medicine to improve medicine.
0: I see. So, so the, this uh, entry of computers into clinical research has only recently been in the last uh, few de- couple of decades, really, and it's been a, an industry that at first was slower to adopt. Um, this kind of technology, but it's made a big difference, hasn't
1: it? It has. It has. I I wish I still had my uh, um, essay I wrote for medical school because uh, the guy who interviewed me for medical school kind of laughed and said, you know, we're never going to use computers in medicine. So uh, we we got the last (laughs)
0: laugh. Yes, yes. I remember those days. So you, as a pediatric pulmonologist, you also, of course, have dealt with families whose young children have very serious disorders and they are um quite desperate for the right kind of medical care and um you and also perhaps to know what clinical research can do to help them with what are often unmet medical needs. Can you say something about that?
1: Yeah I think the it's interesting because at the time that I started doing pediatric pulmonary it was around the time that the, they were starting to push up the um, age of mortality for kids with cystic fibrosis and we had a substantial number of uh, kids who were really my age or they were not kids anymore they were young adults they were professionals Uh, they had jobs they were working and uh, they were struggling with cystic fibrosis and uh, it was it was um, very impactful on me seeing people my age die and uh, i think that's been one of the big influences that i've seen and uh, has made me really sort of over the 40 years of my career in medicine, sort of really appreciate the things uh, that have been done and and the great strides that clinical research have made and basic science research have made to the treatment of that disease.
0: Yes, cystic fibrosis is a disease that not long ago had really no good prognosis and parents whose young children were diagnosed must have just been so desperate. And then we've seen through the persistent work of the clinical researchers and the biotech companies working on it, um, that there has been quite a a breakthrough in cystic fibrosis and that change can actually happen. Um, But it takes, takes, of course, many years. And it takes clinical trials and lots of research before that. And so you have Parkinson's disease and are quite familiar with this world of clinical research. And Parkinson's disease, affects, of course, very many people. It's a common disease. It takes a big toll on our society, yet there is no cure. And because it's such a big disease, there are many companies and researchers at universities and other places working on that. So you are familiar, of course, with the world of clinical trials itself, but you're also familiar with Parkinson's. And you had difficulty um, finding a clinical trial for yourself with all of this background and getting into one Tell us about what happened there, and what does that indicate for other people looking to get into a clinical trial that may not have your background?
1: Well, I think for one, uh, because of my background when I was first diagnosed, um, one of the first questions out of my mouth to the, uh, my, my neurologist was clinical trials can I take part in? Uh, and initially, um, he was running a clinical trial with uh, uh the uh, MOVES-PD trial. And uh, I agreed to take part in that trial and was in that trial for three years. Uh, it was actually about two and a half years into the trial that I was at an IRB meeting where another trial was being um, uh, evaluated, which is a trial I'm currently in now. And um, I'm sorry, the actually first study I was on was called Study PD. The one I'm on now is called Moose PD. I couldn't go on the Moose PD protocol because I was still on the uh, Uh, Original trial, and I noticed that I needed to wait four months between the trials to participate. But when that time came, and I was off the uh, first clinical trial, I was looking for the second one, and I started looking for uh, sites that uh, I could go to. And I found um, a site listed on clinicaltrials.gov that was local in the Washington D.C. area, and I uh, attempted to make contact with them and. I, I couldn't find any uh, anybody to answer the phone. And I ended up um, contacting the IRB manager from the institution at which this was um, theoretically being done. And the IRB manager had no idea that the protocol was being done, had no record of that. So one, I was thinking, you know, I, I'm, I, I know from the IRB world how to find this stuff out, how to look up things on clinicaltrials.gov. And I can't find a local site to be able to participate in this trial. I started then uh, going to uh, contact other places that were local that I would just travel to, um, and I sent uh, emails explaining that uh, I had actually read the protocol, that I had the gene that was required to participate, uh, and that I had read the inclusion criteria and believed that I was a uh, met the inclusion criteria, and. Uh, didn't hear anything from a couple sites. Um, I actually uh, was gonna use my Insight Connections. I talked with the, uh, uh, it was a, San- a Sanofi study, Sanofi study, I think. And I um, talked to our business developer guy and asked him if he knew of anybody at Sanofi if we had contacts. And he did, and I was I was just about to call that person when I got an email from one of the institutions. That uh, they were looking for subjects and would be interested in my participation, but it took a bunch of it took a fair amount of persistence. And I and all this during this time, I was thinking, what do people do who don't have an intimate knowledge of clinical trials? What do people do who haven't made up their mind that they're going to take part in a clinical trial as much as they can to help other people? Um, and and so it became very eye- eye-opening experience. Yes
0: so as people are talking about the how to get the unmet medical needs of parkinson's addressed we often think of the science and the medicine and the research but of course the research depends on patients getting into clinical trials and i know that from what you're telling me and also my own uh, relatives experiences that it's very common for parkinson's uh, patients to ask their physician What clinical trials are there or for the physician to suggest it? So having difficulty finding those is actually astounding when we think of the need and the desire to be in the trials and the need and desire of those trials to enroll patients. Yet there is this difficulty. I know a lot of um, people go to um, centerwatch.com and um, other websites to search and try to figure it out and the world for online search is getting better but um i think what you've told us is a cautionary tale that those who are putting the trials together and publicizing them um need to understand how difficult it still can be to to find it and get enrolled get enrolled
1: i agree um so
0: we the voice of the patient is extremely important in improving clinical research. I think that's become widely agreed in the clinical research world. Um, the, I think the point a lot of people would agree that we are now is a lot of the those who conduct trials listen to the voice of the patient, but they don't always respond to it. They're still learning how do we respond to what the patients are telling us. What would you tell those drug developers and those other researchers at universities or institutions? Um, and the people at hospitals that are conducting trials, or the physicians and or the folks designing the trial protocol, what would you tell them that really matters from a patient's point of view?
1: I think from the I think the first thing is we we need to get a different attitude about making sure that we're informing patients about clinical trials and we're giving them what clinical trials really do, how they can Potentially help themselves, but more so help other people. I remember um, when I was doing pediatric pulmonary, uh, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation was very active. And if I talked to parents about taking part in a clinical trial, they were they were just avid. I had to I had to say, look, first I have to tell you what the study is about, <laughs> and then you can consent. You can't, you know. But they just they just said it's it's research. It's going to help CF. We'll do anything we anything you want us to do. And I think that that I don't see that in uh, adult medicine as much. And I see a lot of physicians who are in private practice who want to, um, you know, don't want to send their patients to get the experimented on. And so I think one first thing we need is to change the attitude and make sure that everybody really knows uh, what the importance of clinical trials are, how they can help, and how participation of everybody or, or, a lar- or a large number of people will, will help everybody in the long run. Um, yes, I, I think that's I, a
0: real key point, is um, upping the education about simply participating in clinical trials, that what's it all about, the the myths, um, the, the facts, so that people can make much more informed decisions, removing perhaps the fear or the stories that they've heard that may be not so well informed. And the... Um, of course, the great contribution, not only to medical research, but for the patient, possibly it's access to medicines they wouldn't otherwise get. Right,
1: and I think, so, and also having a default that if if you're a physician or a neurologist and you have saying you have somebody with Parkinson's disease, the default is is to get that person involved in clinical trials, even and even if it's just a even even if it's some, a basic science study of blood drawing or longitudinal follow-up, uh, at least get them involved in research so that everybody is contributing in some way.
0: Yeah, so that's, a, that's the note to to the physicians and the researchers to ask the patients, to, to invite them, to suggest it, that it's not just all the burden is on the patient to find the trial. Um, research has shown that a lot of patients just don't get asked and the physicians don't bring it up. So that is mm-hmm. perhaps a place things should change. you have such a um such a distinguished and multidimensional career and as parkinsons has uh entered your world i think it is, uh, speaks to lots of people who also are um in their careers and in their family life and things that they want to do and although they have uh whether it's parkinsons or something else they don't necessarily want to now spend the rest of their time just sitting in hospital waiting rooms or um being a quote-unquote patient, um, how have you uh, blended um, your um, treatment of Parkinson's and your um, your work and your life?
1: Well, I've tried to basically do do the things that I can do to uh, stay healthy and control my symptoms in terms of taking medications, exercising, uh, being involved. I'm at the point now where it's starting to kind of affect my ability to get a lot of work done. It's uh, um, it's very fatiguing to uh, operate a computer and answer email. And I used to picture myself as somebody who would be working until I was age 72, and uh, now I'm looking at myself and saying, I I want to I, I'm not going to be able to do that. Um, so I think I think my first few years of Parkinson's I think it had very little effect, but it's starting to. Uh, catch up with me as the progresses. Yes, yes.
0: Well, you, you have certainly um, highlighted today some of the key things that can move this um, needle forward and speaks, I'm sure, to a lot of people who are also in mid-career and who want to continue doing what they do. And throughout our whole society, there's going to be great benefit if these um, things that you're suggesting can be implemented in a, on a widespread basis. So thank you very much for speaking with us today, Dr. Jeffrey Cooper. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. This has been WCG Patient Radio. I'm Steve Smith, and we've been speaking today with Dr. Jeffrey Cooper, MD, a pediatric pulmonologist who also happens to have Parkinson's disease. Thank you for listening, everyone. Goodbye.